0: Well, good morning, everybody. Really good to see you. We've had a lot this morning, haven't we? A lot to hear about, a lot to get excited about. Um, And I believe that I've got a really important word to share with us this morning as well. So if I could ask you to do your best to stay with us, to remain awake, that would be great. Um, Welcome. If you're you're coming back off your holidays this morning, it's good to see you. And if you're about to leave for a substantially cheaper holiday, then... um, (laughs) Have a good time, I suppose. Um, (laughs) Over the summer, uh, Steve and Martin have been speaking to us from the Book of Psalms. As is mentioned already, we're going to spend another week, um, one more week on that this morning. Now, I've not been around for most of the series um, this time. I was away with the youth and I had a couple of weeks with my family in Croatia, sunning ourselves, and then in Wales, um, getting rained on. It was a good balance, it was a good balance. Um, So I've not listened to most of the talks in this series yet, I've not had a chance to catch up online. So if I say something that's already been said, if you could pretend it's the first time you're hearing it, just nod and smile, that will be really affirming for me. So we're in Psalms, there's 150 Psalms, I've counted. Um, So far in the series we've looked at 13, 23, 42, 43, 46 and 139. So we've done six. So we've got 144 to go. Um, (sighs) Looking at the clock already. Um, I don't think we're going to make it. Uh, The longest is 119. It's 176 verses and 2,000 words long. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. So if you're ever struggling to sleep, um, it's a good one to meditate on. And the shortest is 117, which is two verses, 16 words. So if you're in a hurry, that's the Bible study for you. Um, And often we read Psalms, don't we, as a part of our worship, during our worship. um, And Christians have been doing this really since Jesus' day. In fact, Jesus himself sang, it says, a hymn with his disciples after the Last Supper. And that would have been Psalms 113 to 118, according to Jewish tradition. And I love that. I love the idea of Jesus singing the Psalms. You know, starting off and then Peter harmonises and James beatboxes and John lays down a rap section. It would have been... It would have been great, I'm sure. In fact, most of the songs we sing on a Sunday morning are inspired by psalms. If you want to write a Christian hit, you just take a psalm, remove the bits you don't like about Zion and Jerusalem, add a chorus, and you're away. You're done. But the psalms are not just for singing, they're for teaching as well. And Jesus quotes the book of psalms more than any other book Um, In the Bible, he uses Psalm 8 and 110 to outwit the Pharisees. Psalm 82, when the crowds accuse him of blasphemy. Psalm 35 and 69, when he's talking to his disciples about why the world has rejected him. He quotes Psalm 41, when he's talking about which disciple will betray him. When the high priests ask him, are you the son of God? He quotes Psalm 110. He talks about himself as the chief cornerstone taken from Psalm 118. And he also talks about the destruction of Jerusalem using Psalm 118. Um, and of course, perhaps most famously, he quotes Psalm 22 from the cross. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A psalm that begins with a plea to God, a prayer made at a point of desperation. Because as well as being songs and tools for teaching, the psalms are also prayers. Often deeply personal prayers made during times of great persecution or times of great frustration. And many times they can be quite raw. You know, we've seen it already. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? It says in Psalm thirteen, Psalm sixty nine says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck, and I sink in the miry depths, but there's no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the floods engulf me. Well Psalm eighty eight says, I'm overwhelmed with troubles, and death draws near. It's quite bleak. It's quite overwhelming. You can sense the pain and the frustration from the psalmist as they write those words. And it's one of those raw emotional psalms that I want to spend a bit of time looking at with you this morning. So I'm warning you now, up front, it might get a little bit heavy this morning, but it's going to end in a good place, all right? That's my promise to you. Stick with me because we're going to finish in a really, really good place. So if you've got your Bibles with you, We're going to be looking at Psalm um, 51. Now, in my Bible, there's a little bit just above the psalm that says, "For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba." So, unlike many of the psalms, we actually have for this one a purpose, an author, and a context. Now. Don't panic if you're not familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba. We're going to get into that shortly. But for now, let's just read what David is saying in this psalm. And I'll put the words up if you haven't got a Bible with you. He begins, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. "'Wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. "'For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. "'Against you and you only have I sinned "'and done what is evil in your sight. "'So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. "'Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. "'Yet you desired fairness, faithfulness sorry, even in the womb. "'You taught me wisdom in the secret place.'" "'Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. "'Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. "'Let me hear joy and gladness. "'Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. "'Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. "'Create in me a pure heart, O God, "'and renew a steadfast spirit within me. "'Do not cast me from your presence "'or take your Holy Spirit from me. "'Restore to me the joy of your salvation.'" And grant a willing spirit to sustain me. And then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O oh God, you who are God, my saviour. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, O oh God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteousness. In burnt offerings offered whole and bulls will be offered on your altar. I told you it was heavy. This is the prayer of a broken man. A man who has been living with his sin for too long. My sin is always Before me, he says, it's right there. It's all I can see. It's his whole field of vision. A man who knows he's done wrong in the sight of God. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He feels that separation from his creator. A man who feels crushed under the the weight of it. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. He's desperate to feel whole again, to be restored Restore to me the joy of your salvation, he says. But why does he feel this way? What's happened to him? What has brought him to this place of desperation? Because this isn't an ordinary man we're talking about here. This is David, the king of Israel, the boy who killed a giant with a stone and his faith in God. I'm sure we've all heard of David and Goliath at least. He was anointed by Samuel. Ahead of his brothers and chosen to replace Saul as king who had gone his own way. And we read later in Acts 13, God said concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. A man after God's own heart. Someone who desired the things of God above all else. And this is, this is evidence in his life that you can read about in First and Second Samuel. 1 Samuel 23, the Philistines come and they steal grain out of the barns. And so David prays to God, should I go and attack them? Now you might think if someone's making off with your 42-inch TV, you'd just go after them, wouldn't you? But not David. He prays to God first. And later um, in 1 Samuel 30, his family are taken captive. And so he says, should I chase after the band of raiders? Will I catch them? God says, yeah, <laughs> go on, hurry up, go and get them. But, you know, because of his obedience and his faithfulness, God uses him to do incredible things. He brings about the unification of Israel. He conquers Jerusalem and brings the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God, into the city. He wins victory after victory and he is loved by the people. And he writes about it in the Psalms. As we've discovered already through this series in Psalm 1, he says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaves do not wither. Whatever they do prospers. This was his experience of God. This is what his life with God was like. Until one day he made a series of decisions that put him on a path that led him away from God's heart. And it's a path that ultimately leads to the broken man that we see in Psalm 51. And we find the story in Second Samuel chapter 11, and I just want to take you through this story um, this morning. I think there are many really useful lessons we can learn from this. So if you have your Bibles with you, please feel free. Um, to follow along. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse one. And it begins this way. It says, in the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. David remained. So the kings go to war in the spring because it's too cold in the winter. But David chose this year to stay behind. I want to suggest this morning that this was David's first mistake. The whole army were heading off together. The people of God were all going in one direction. They were carrying with them the Ark of the Covenant. The very presence of God, the place where his spirit dwelt. And as they took God with them, David sent Joab in his place. He decided to stay at home. Nah, you guys go. It's fine. I'm going to just chill here in the palace. Maybe watch a bit of Netflix. Just hang out. You guys take care of it for me, yeah? I'll catch you later. Now, he wasn't sinning in doing this. He wasn't doing anything wrong. But he made a decision to step away from the work that God was doing at that time. He made a decision to distance himself from the people and the presence of God. You know, the conflict with the Amorites had been going on for quite some time. You can read about it in the previous chapter, and the battle was only halfway done. As the leader of the nation, David should have been with the army. But instead, he chooses to fix his attention elsewhere. Actually, he chooses to fix his attention nowhere, which leads him open to temptation. He created enough space in his life away from the plans and purposes of God that the enemy found something to fill the gap with. And so we read in verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw her woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And so here it is, the temptation. David's bored. I mean, he's all alone, for one thing, in a big old palace. It's a nice evening, he hasn't got much on, he thinks, maybe I'll go watch the sunset. So he wanders up to the roof to get the best view. But as he is up there, looking out across the city, he spots her having a bath. On the roof. His brain lights up. What should he do? Well, he should look away, of course, but he doesn't, because David has a problem with lust, and he knows it. He's already married more than one woman. He's already disobeyed God in this area. He knows it's an issue for him, and the longer he stares, the more his imagination runs away with him. You see, at this point, he hasn't, still hasn't really sinned. He's only noticed her. I mean, she's on the roof, for goodness sake. Clear sight of the palace. But very quickly, looking doesn't feel like enough. He should have gone back to bed. Maybe he should have gone for a cold shower. But instead, he sends someone to find out more. Now, the man in, the, in this story is not named... But well, I think he speaks with the voice of God when he says, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You see, by now, David has allowed himself to continue thinking about this woman. And really, he's committed adultery in his heart, maybe multiple times. He's played out the fantasy in his mind as he stood watching her. And now the voice of this man breaks through the fog and says, David, David, that's someone's daughter. That's someone's wife. Wake up. Snap out of it before it's too late, before you go too far. It's a shot over the bow. It's a warning that his heart was being seduced by something else. Something that was not God's purpose for him. And you know, really, it's a tale as old as time, isn't it? I think maybe the most obvious parallel we have today is our society's fixation with pornography. I mean, it's everywhere, right? We don't need to go and... Look on roofs for people taking baths. So we just need to turn on our TV or our internet browser and it's there whether we want to see it or not. But it's up to us whether or not we allow ourselves to get drawn into it, whether we allow ourselves to get sucked in by it. You know, James writes in his letter, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. As we give in to temptation, we are dragged away from God's plans and purposes for us, and it leads us down a dark path. One of the problems um, with pornography in particular is that it's all about self-gratification. It's about our wants, our needs, our desires, and we forget that the people we're looking at are human. Somebody else's daughter, somebody else's son, real people who God knows and God loves, and it damages us. It makes us able to not function in the real world because we start to see people as objects to be used for our gratification and nothing else. And we need to break away from that fantasy and come back to the real world. And you know, very often when we're tempted, whether it's of a sexual nature or something else entirely, we get a warning. We get that still, small voice of God that says, don't do this. This isn't right. This isn't how I want you to live. But of course, the way we respond to that message depends entirely upon the condition of our heart. The temptation that David was facing here arguably was less of a temptation than Joseph faced when Potiphar's wife asked him to come to bed. And yet Joseph responded by saying, my master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? How could I do that? His heart was in the right place. But David makes his second mistake. He chooses to listen not to the voice of God in this moment, but to his heart that's already wondered. Later on he would plead, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. But right now we read in verse four that David sent messages to get her, messages to get her. She came to him and he slept with her and then she went back home. Sounds very much like how sex works today, doesn't it? See something you fancy. Send a message, swipe rights, meet up, have sex, go home. Done. No messing around. So it's never really that simple, is it? You know, David had moved from a disinterest in what God was doing through to temptation, now to a place of opposition. He'd set himself up against God's plans and purposes for his life, and he'd chosen to go his own way, and things were about to get even worse. Sometime later, he gets a call from Bathsheba and she tells him that she's pregnant. And he puts the phone down and he starts to panic. What do I do? She's pregnant. It's a month now, but soon she'll start to show. And if her husband gets back from the war, he'll find out and then others will know. And So he starts to hatch a plan. He gets in touch with Joab, who you remember was the guy that he sent off to fight the war for him. He says, send Ariah back to me, send him back. And Uriah arrives home and comes straight to David and David starts asking him questions. He pretends that he's interested in the war effort. He says, how's Joab doing? How are the soldiers? How's the, how's the war going? Are we winning? But it's all a ruse because all he really wants from Uriah is for him to go home and sleep with his wife. He says, go down to your house and wash your feet. We all know that, what that means, don't we? Go and wash your feet. Nudge, nudge. Go on. He thinks once he gets those feet out, it will be plain sailing from there. (laughs) He'll sleep with his wife, he'll head back to the war, and when he gets back, he'll have a nice surprise waiting for him. But here's the really sad thing I want you to notice about this passage. In order to cover up his sin, David is now pretending to be interested in what God is doing with his people all the while consumed with covering his own tracks. He's moved from a position of genuinely seeking God's heart to faking it just to cover his sin. I don't know if you've ever been in that place before. I have. There have been times where I've stood in church and pretended to be in love with God, all the while feeling like a fraud because what I've done in the week. I might be saying the right things to God, but in reality... I'm not living like any of it's true. And you see, one of the problems with sin is that it distracts us from God. It starts small, insignificant, but the more we entertain it, the more we give it our attention, the more we invest, the more it grows and begins to consume us and fill our mind. And before we know it, the things of God have dropped off of our radar completely. They're not even a feature in our life anymore. And, you know, David has the opportunity here to come clean, doesn't he? He could have confessed his sin. He could have asked for Uriah's forgiveness. But he just pretends like everything's fine. And he hides his sin. And he buries it deep. Another mistake. The next day, David receives a message to say Uriah didn't go home, but slept instead with the servants. And so David calls him back and says, Uriah, buddy, I thought I told you to go and wash your feet. What's going on? And his response is breathtaking. He says in verse 11, The ark, which contained the presence of God, and Israel and Judah, God's people, are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? Surely as you live I would not do such a thing. You see, David's heart was set upon his sin. Uriah's heart was set upon the plans and purposes of God. It's as simple as that. Where's our heart this morning? Is our heart set upon the plans and purposes of God or something else entirely? It should have been a wake-up call to David. He should have remembered that God had called him to his purposes. He was anointed for a purpose, but instead he was too consumed with what he had done. He had moved from disinterest in what God was doing to temptation to opposition to now actively trying to remove others from his purpose and people and presence. How much further could he possibly fall? Honestly, I'm afraid to read on, and I know what's coming. David says, All right, buddy, stay here one more night, and I'll send you back, I promise. And then he takes down the good wine from the top shelf and lays out some shot glasses. And he gets him drunk in an attempt to soften his resolve and get him home to his wife, but he still refuses to go. So David sends him back with a sealed letter for Joab that instructs Joab to put Ariah on the front line where the fighting is fiercest, and then withdraw so that he will be killed. Uriah unknowingly carries his own death sentence back to the war. Also David could hide his sin. And we read at the end of the chapter, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. And it says at the very end, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. David had ignored the things God had (coughs) called him to, which led into indulging in a fantasy and lust, which turned into adultery, which became deception, which finally became murder. And the thing is, all the hiding and all the subterfuge, and it didn't matter because God saw everything that he'd done. He knew exactly what he was up to. He knew the condition of his heart. We can never hide from God. In fact, in the next chapter, God sends Nathan to him. Not our Nathan, different one. Um, And he tells him straight. He says, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what's evil in his eyes? You struck down Ariah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him. Killed him with the sword of the Amorites. And it hits him. Finally, it hits him. The full weight of what he's done. He can't pretend any longer and he cries out, I have sinned. I have sinned against the Lord. And we read, we read those words earlier, Have mercy on me, Lord. He's finally ready to confess his sin to God. And it breaks him because it means that he has to stop making excuses and take an honest look at himself. He starts by taking ownership of his sin. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He holds up his hands and he surrenders. And then he finally comes clean. He asks to be delivered from the guilt of bloodshed. He confesses his sin to God. Which leads him to ask for forgiveness. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Hyssop was a herb that was used um, during Jewish ritual cleansing they would dip the herb in the blood of the sacrifice. And so David has a sense that there's a sacrifice that needs to be made. And of course, God makes the ultimate sacrifice, not just for David, but for all of us, when he sends Jesus to die in our place. And then David asks for God's grace. He says, create in me a pure heart, renew a steadfast spirit in me. He wants to experience the presence of God in his life again. He wants the very thing that he doesn't deserve. And the final thing he asks for in his prayer is to be used by God again. For his purpose, he says, I will teach transgressors your ways, so sinners will turn back to you. And you know, the amazing thing is that God does it. He looks forward to the sacrifice that Jesus will make. And he looks back at David and he forgives him. He takes away his guilt. He takes away his shame. He removes his sin. His actions still had consequences, but God removed the guilt and the shame and restored him. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 32. He said, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him and whose whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And then I acknowledged my sin to you and you did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. And you forgave. So where does this leave us this morning? What's the lesson Or maybe there are parts of David's story, as I've shared it with you, that have resonated with you. At various points in my life, I've found myself um, empathising with David. I've never gone as far as to have someone killed, but I've certainly found myself being seduced by sin. And maybe you have an awareness this morning that things are perhaps just not as they should be. That there is a sin in your life that has a hold over you that is driving you away from God. From his presence and his purposes in your life. It might be something that you've struggled with your entire life. In fact it probably is. Because the enemy is not very creative. He uses the same old traps to get us. Lust, greed, anger, jealousy, apathy, laziness. And the lesson we need to learn from David is that there is only one way to deal with it. We have to shine a light upon it. We have to stop trying to hide it. We have to stop trying to justify it to ourselves and to others. And we have to admit to God, God, I'm a sinner. I've messed up. Again. And I'm sorry. Because it's only when we do that that God can begin to heal us. As I've said already, you know, David's life remained complicated because of the decisions that he made that year. But Because of his willingness to confess and take ownership of his sin, he experienced God's forgiveness in his life. And so can we. So, as I come into land, let me just try and pull a few of these lessons together. The first mistake I think David made was removing himself from the presence of God and the people of God. I think that's the first thing he did wrong. Because it was in that environment of isolation that he opened himself up to temptation. We all know our weaknesses. We know where the enemy will get us. We know when we're most vulnerable and we also know that we're stronger together. If we have the opportunity to be involved with other believers, whether it's a Sunday morning or a life group or a ministry, we should take it. Because, you know, left to our own devices, we struggle. And if you're someone that that struggles with looking at the wrong things, then you need to make yourself accountable to someone. You need to put other people in your life that will watch you, look over your shoulder, that will challenge you. There are no ladies taking a bath in the middle of the battlefield. The second mistake David made is that he ignored the warning. The Apostle Paul wrote much later on, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. We need to learn to listen to that still, small voice that says, Just stop. Stop, this isn't isn't what I have for you. This isn't my plan and purpose for your life. And if we don't hear that voice, then, then maybe we need to spend more time with him because Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. The third mistake that David made was that he pretended everything was okay when it wasn't. We all sin. We're not perfect We need to learn how to take responsibility for our own sin, to confess it to God regularly. That's why it's built into the Lord's Prayer. It's right there. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who sin against us. Because, you know, the more we try to hide it and bury it, the tighter the grip the enemy has on us. One of the reasons pornography has such a hold on people is because it's done behind closed doors. It's a secret... But it's a lie, really, because God knows the state of your heart. So don't hide. I'm going to finish um, just by reading to you from 1 John 1. I want to read to you the promise of God in all of this. And this is what I want us to leave with this morning. This is what I want us to hold on to. I said I was going to finish in a good place. This is what 1 John 1 says. If you just move that on for me. Thank you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out in the truth. But if we walk in the light and he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from the sin. That's the sacrifice. That's the sacrifice, Jesus. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and the word is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. You know, one of the, um, one of the lies of the enemy, one of the things that he whispers to us is... You've gone too far this time, there's no hope for you now. You've done too much, you're too far down the rabbit hole, God's not gonna forgive you this time, oh no, you've really messed up, but it's a lie, it's a lie. God is waiting for us, he wants us to recognise the things that we've done wrong day to day in our lives so that he can start to fix us and put us back together. He's desperate to meet us in the middle of our sin, in the middle of the things that we've done wrong. Don't listen when you hear that voice telling you, "Mm, you've messed up now, that's it, game over. God's done with you, because he's not. He absolutely is not. As we finish um, this morning, I want to play a song to you. Not me personally, that would be terrible. Um, Someone who can sing. Sometimes when we um, finish a Sunday, we just get the band back up and and they lead us in a worship song, which is always brilliant. But sometimes we switch into that. Oh, it's the last song. I can can nearly go home. I'm just going to sing this song and I'm out of here kind of mode. But actually, I want us just to have two, three minutes to reflect on the words that we've read together this morning. I want us to have a bit of space to to pray. So I'm going to just Play the song, there's some lyrics on the screen, you can read them or you can just listen to the words. But as we do that, I want us to check our own heart and just make sure that there is nothing that we need to confess to God. We can close your eyes, you can be still, you can pray silently. Um, But I want us to be sure as we leave this morning that our hearts are set on the plans and purposes and presence of God. And if we need to this morning, hold our hands up and say, God, I'm a sinner, (laughs) I've messed up. I need you to forgive me. Then I want us to be able to have the space to do that. So we're going to listen um, to this song together and the band will come up and lead us afterwards. If this morning you're fine, everything's confessed, there's nothing you need to worry about, then good job. Would you just um, pray for the rest of us? (laughs) Me included. Because I think we're all in the same boat, really. Okay, let's just um, play that song. Thank you.